0: I don't think people are walking around sabotaging themselves, I think they're having trauma responses and that no one's let them walk through that process in a way that is healthy and that they can then connect with that experience and move through it. Because mm-hmm. your trauma is in your business whether you think it is or not. Your trauma's in your art whether you think it is or not. Your trauma is in your career whether you think it is, like it just is.
1: What does it take to become a successful writer or artist? There are some destructive myths out there about what a creative career is supposed to look like. And we're kept in our lane by the undermining belief that as artists, we're somehow incapable of building autonomous, sustainable careers if we choose the work that's closest to our hearts. So we're gonna tear down those myths and get the truth by going to the source. Incredible professional creatives who followed every path but the expected one to success on their own terms. I'm cartoonist, author, and coach for creatives, Jessica Abel, and this is The Autonomous Creative. Does it sometimes feel like you're stuck in an abusive relationship with your work? I don't mean to diminish any love you may feel for your writing or art or whatever form your creativity takes, but do you ever wonder if it loves you back? In my work with students of the Creative Focus Workshop and Authentic Visibility and members of the Autonomous Creative Collective, I see the same things come up all the time. One of the most visible, painful patterns I see is skillful, committed, fascinating mid-career creatives pacing up and down the same well-worn grooves of painful self-recrimination, ancient doubts, and repressive fears. That's why, when I became aware of the work of Nicole Lewis-Keeber, my ears perked up. Nicole is a licensed clinical social worker with a master's in social work and rich experience working as a therapist. She's certified in Brene Brown's The Daring Way and Dare to Lead Methodologies. And her biggest, most important work is in combining therapeutic processes with business coaching to help entrepreneurs build emotionally sustainable, financially stable businesses. Nicole works with small business owners to unpack their relationships with their work and help them do no harm, which is the name of her coaching program, to themselves or others. Now, you may not identify as a small business owner. Regardless, after years of coaching creative people, everything she says about the interrelationship of childhood trauma and how we go about pursuing our dreams rings 100% true. And in case childhood trauma feels like an overblown description of your past, she also says, whether you have significant trauma in your past or not, we've been socialized and conditioned not to have agency over decisions we make. And that rings true for me as well. I invited Nicole to join me for a live event last year with my membership, but the conversation was so valuable, I wanted to bring it to the podcast so that we can all continue to benefit from her powerful insights. We'll dive straight into our conversation with Nicole Lewis-Keeber after this message. What does it really take to make it as a creative? This is the burning question that's driven me for forever, really. I used to have to try to ferret out the answers one by one when I got a chance to hang out with a fellow artist or writer and when I judged it safe enough to ask that delicate question we're all dying to know the answer to. How do you make it work? Every guest I've interviewed so far has mentioned this. One of the secrets to how they've gotten as far as they have is that they've asked every creative pro they met every chance they got. Asking the question often enough is a game changer. We learn so much each time, starting with the fact that whatever we thought was working for that person, we were probably wrong. We each imagine the other person has some kind of secret and that they've made the leap over the giant chasm between beginner and pro and feel safe on the other side. And inevitably, neither person feels that way at all and is amazed to realize that from the outside, they seem to have it all figured out. I'm pulling that seemingly taboo conversation out of the shadows on this show. It's also the conversation we take further every day inside the community of Authentic Visibility. Authentic Visibility is our group coaching program designed to help dedicated creatives who are very reasonably wary of marketing and promotion into powerful advocates for their vision and their work, setting the stage for huge career growth and a major role in the larger cultural conversation. Got a major project dropping soon and you're determined not to let it founder? Get the support you need to create a reasonable promotion plan that aligns with your goals and fits your life. Don't know how to talk about your work without squirming? You'll practice and refine your messaging in a safe, supportive space inside authentic visibility. Hate or fear social media and don't know what else to do? There are lots of options and you can workshop solutions that suit you and your approach with your peers. You can learn all about authentic visibility and get a sense of my teaching philosophy in a free 90-minute class specifically for creatives called How to Get People Wildly Obsessed with Your Work. And in it, you'll get a head start on developing clear, compelling language for sharing your work with your audience so that they get it and they want more. If you want your work to make its mark in the world, check out the free Wildly Obsessed class and supercharge your ability to connect with new fans in just 90 minutes. Go to jessicaable.com slash wildly and join the free class now. That's jessicaable.com slash wildly. Okay, let's start the show. I'm so glad you're here, Nicole. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me. I appreciate
1: it. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us just a little bit about what you do, what your process is like, what kind of things do you do in your, in your own practice?
0: It's a lot, of different things. Um, <laughs> I would say that the, the thread is that I help people who either have a business or multiple businesses or um, identify as a leader in some place in their lives, get clear about how seemingly insignificant childhood experiences and some pretty significant childhood experiences impact their relationship with with that thing, that business, you know, because what I have learned over the years is that those experiences that we have change how we see ourselves. It can, you know, impact our confidence, how we value ourselves. And, you know, when it comes to creativity, when it comes to starting a business, all of those things are an act of courage and you're putting yourself out there in a very vulnerable way. And when we feel vulnerable at times in our life, previously maybe as kids, you know, like younger kids, that vulnerability can come back as adults in new endeavors. And so I've been working with people for 18 years as a therapist, but about six as a business therapist to help people really begin to reveal and untangle some of those experiences that may be impacting their their business, their life, career.
1: I think that's just so it's it's really awesome that you identified this need and then saw it through. You know, I just, I feel like as any coach, you see this all the time. You see people playing out the same patterns and things, but I'm not a therapist. I don't know how to handle that stuff. I mean, I do the best I can from a coaching point of view, Mm -hmm. but the sort of deep untangling stuff, I just, that's why I'm so excited about sharing your work here. So can you just tell me a little bit about how you ended up in this? Yeah. niche and like this what's way. the what's your turning point here
0: <laughs> this odd little intersection right um mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah so I wasn't a therapist for 18 years so I have a pretty you know broad experience in working with humans and um also have been in therapy myself you know I think any good therapist should be in therapy um and so I know what it's like to be in a in an office with someone asking you about your childhood trauma and saying I don't really think that I experienced <laughs> <with> trauma <laughs> completely minimizing my experience Um, and should have known better because I was a therapist too and you know so I've had this experience in multiple ways and after I left the world of direct practice about eight years ago I started to work with small business owners and entrepreneurs around money mindset because I wanted to do some coaching and that was the first certification available and so I jumped in I'm like yeah my relationship with money probably not that great I mean I'm a social worker by the way so yeah, that's the immediate vow of poverty. So, let me, ju- <laughs> <laughs> so let me jump in and learn. Um, and so that's what I did. And as I was working with the clients around money, what I began to see is the people who were attracted to me were working with me because I had been a therapist. And they were really recognizing that a lot of the money mindset tips and tricks and like all the things that you read, you know, weren't working for them. And so then they have shame on top of that. But the reason it wasn't working for them is because they were actually dealing with some childhood trauma patterns that were showing up in their relationship with their money. And mindset tips and tricks don't work when you're dealing with a trauma response. And it really opened up my eyes to begin to see that, hmm, money, trauma, interesting. Um, And so I began to explore that with my clients and Along the way, about two and a half years into my business, um, I was not feeling very empowered in mine and feeling pretty beat up by it and I actually was wondering whether I wanted to continue working you know with these clients and having my own business. And what I recognized in a, a story that I can tell later or now is that I was actually replicating some childhood uh, trauma patterns within my own business and the, and the mechanisms within the business. And when I got clear about that and made some changes regarding that, it, it changed the direction of my business, my work, my study, the research, I do everything. It was quite a, an amazing you know, moment. And I could talk more about that. Yeah. Please know. tell us about how that happened for you. Yeah. So I think, you know, have you ever been in one of those moments where everything comes together and you know that you're in the right place and you're doing the right thing at some point, even if you don't know how to monetize it yet, even if you're not exactly sure what the next step is you feel that your experiences, your training, whatever it is, all those things came together in this perfect moment. And I I believe that's kind of what was happening this, that morning and that I woke up and was feeling like crap um, and was literally considering stopping my business because in my mind, my business was a failure, not making enough money. My clients aren't happy. You know, it doesn't look the way I want it to look. I'm feeling really exhausted at the end of the day and unable to see any benefit any positivity whatsoever at the end of the day and i didn't really sign up for this like i could do that and have a 401k and a paycheck to feel (laughs) like crap right just let someone else to do that so i didn't sign up for that and so uh what i did is i was trying to change my mood because i think we can change our energy if we can take action And I was reading the book, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. And that book talks a lot about creativity. And I came across a chapter in that book where I don't remember who it was at this point. It's in my book too. I should remember, but I don't. But it was a professor of, I believe, environmental sciences, some kind of nature degree. And this professor asked the incoming class if they loved nature to raise their hand. And they all did. And then she said, how many of you feel like nature loves you in return? And their hands went down. And the gist of the story is that she said, this is going to be problematic. If you're going to spend all this time and this money studying something that you do not feel that you have a relationship with, that you do not feel supports you and loves you in return, this can be very problematic. And in that moment, I realized that I love my business and I was creating it. And it was something I was really dedicated to, but I did not feel like my business loved me in return at all. In fact, I felt like I was being pretty beat up by it. And so as one does, I start asking myself these questions. Well, why would I feel that way? Well, I would feel that way because I set it up to be that way. There's no one else here but me, right? And I began to recognize that I had set up an abusive dynamic with my business because I believe that your business is something that is outside of you. You are not it. You are not your, you know, anything is always something outside of you and we're relating to it. And so. Therefore, we are prone to bring those roles and patterns of relating into that dynamic. And so that morning, I recognized that I had done something really gnarly (laughs) to my business. (laughs) And I spent my entire career working that backwards for myself and with my clients, which is why I ended up writing the book I wrote so that people could begin to understand this.
1: Yes. Yes. So much so. I mean, it's such a familiar feeling. I completely recognize this. And like in my own life and patterns with, which I didn't pull apart at the time, Mm -hmm. but patterns of like overwork and workaholism with my comics, where I would just wall to wall, 12 hour days, you know, just grinding through stuff. Cause that's the model that I understood of showing up to work. And I, I really recognize that moment where you go like, this is unsustainable. I can't do this anymore. And yet, you know, I, I love this work. So what do I do?
0: Yes, absolutely. And and I had to recognize that, you know, I had really difficult relationship with my mother. And so I had this dynamic where I was setting up this parentified relationship with this business that uh, if I looked at it that way and if I related it to that, it that way, there was no way for me to ever feel that it was enough or that I had done a good job because that was not the relationship you know it's a very mm-hmm. hypercritical mm-hmm. relationship and so you know as I started to work with my clients around this they began to see many of them that they had set up a dynamic with their relationship with their business as well that was not serving them to the highest level of what they were wanting to reach you know I, I've, t- I've worked with people who write books same thing they set up a relationship with their book their writing process that felt very demanding and abusive sometimes. So, you know, it's, I always say, you know, you are not your business. There's something outside of you that you are relating to. It is not your baby either. It is something that you deserve to partner with you to create the, the vision or the outcome that you're looking for.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. You said something a little while ago that I wanted to pick up on and made a note to myself is this idea when you were first learning coaching and you were doing money mindset and you're like, well, the problem is tips and tricks of mindset don't apply, you know, they don't work if you're experiencing trauma. Mm-hmm. I have a big problem with the word mindset because to me, it, it has this kind of air of like a tinfoil hat. Like you can take yeah. off one tinfoil hat and put like another one on and then you have a new mindset. And it seems to me that anybody who's having issues with what we call money mindset probably does have trauma. Like mm-hmm. probably that's what's going on and that's why we're having issues with this. And so is there a better way of thinking about this? I mean, clearly the overall process that you're talking about of like digging into, you know, an unwinding childhood trauma is that thing. But I mean, just in terms of like action versus tips and tricks or, you know, more sort of framework-y in that sense.
0: I think I understand your question. And if I haven't, feel free to check in with me, because sometimes I process slower. I think that mindset tips and tricks indicate that there is a flip of a switch available to us when it comes to our brains, how we process things, our relationship with our money, um, how we value ourselves, our nervous system. And that is not the case. I I literally don't know of anything in life that turns on and off other than my lights, maybe my TV. But we approach it that way that we should be able to, we'll just choose to be happy, just choose to look at the positive, just Choose to believe that the universe loves you and it's going to drop you a million bucks in your lap. And it doesn't work that way, I think in general, but it really doesn't work that way if you've had trauma because these practices expect you to have trust and belief. And when you have had trauma, big T trauma, little t trauma, if you've had experiences where your trust in other people and yourself has been fractured, asking someone to trust and in, in, believe that this beautiful and bountable thing is available to them their nervous system is not going to come online with it. their inner critic is going to call bullshit on it like it's just not going to happen and so then what happens is all the te- the techniques the tricks don't work and so then there's a spiral out and they think it's about their money when it's actually not that it's not actually about the money it's about how they're mm-hmm. valuing themselves and money's just a representation of that i don't know if mm-hmm. that answered your question
1: oh yes. absolutely yeah no that's exactly it and like swap out money for creative motivation mm-hmm. or some other, whatever else it is that you think you can kind of just fix it. And so I want to get into what does trauma look like? Big T, small T, because I think a lot of people, you know, they may think of experiences that were negative in their lives and think like, I, was that, tra- I mean, does it count? Do I get to say mm-hmm. that I had, trauma? you know, and the thing that you said about breaking trust,
0: I feel like that is probably at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. And I, if anyone asks me, was that experience traumatic? And I say, were you traumatized by it? Or do you have energy around it? And they say, yes, I'm like that it is, right? (laughs) Because trauma is very personal. And I can't tell you what is traumatic to me may not be traumatic to you because you may have different systems around you that support you. You may have different people in your life who are there to kind of help you put the pieces together a little bit when you have a fracturing experience. So I think it's really important for us to make space and listen to people when they say, you know, this experience is really traumatic and not say, well, you know, well, I had blah, 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 and it was worse, or that's nothing. And that's the experience that at least I've had growing up in my life. And even as a therapist is the, well, that's not trauma that's just a hard day or be lucky you had blah 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 so if we were to define it um I always like to define it in two ways so one of the I think one of the things that's really problematic is that no one's expecting to find trauma in their business they're not expecting necessarily to find trauma at work they're not maybe they're not expecting to find it in their creative process I kind of think it is because I think trauma and creativity those processes are like so healing right but what we're, what we do is we don't define it correctly. So if I were to take my, um, if I had a microphone and went out on the street and ask people, Hey, what does trauma mean to you? They're probably going to give you really big dramatic events like PTSD, violence, you know, catastrophic illness, natural disasters, you know, all these things. And that is trauma. It is, we call it kind of like big T trauma. It's acute And it's, it changes everything really quickly. And it, you're out of, it's out of control of your control. Um, But one of the things that I've learned about over the years is that there's different types of this. And there's also something called little T or small T trauma, which are cumulative. These are small micro moments where you have felt unsafe, unseen, trust was fractured. And those cumulative moments add up. They change how you see yourself. They erode your confidence They make you begin to um, modify who you are to match other people. To change how you value yourself and see what might be possible for you and that can be anything from having a learning difference like I did growing up you know going to school every day and being told you're lazy you're stupid you can't do this you know that's traumatic and that adds up and it changes how you see yourself it changes how you value yourself and so you better bet when I started my business and I had to start putting price tags on things and speaking to people that that mm-hmm. experience I had that trauma because that was trauma that added up and it impacted me. It took me many years to see that as an actual trauma because I thought, again, like trauma was what everybody else said as far as like violence and abuse. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people walking around with these small T traumas that have really impacted their lives in very profound ways that they would not say, hey, that was a trauma.
1: Yeah, no, we've talked a lot in, in the Autonomous Creative Collective about this feeling of growing up, you know, as artists, a lot of people, a lot of us were kind of the weirdo in the playground who's mm-hmm. like off in the corner. Like I would like walk along the back fence and like dig stuff up and play with grass, and <laughs> you know, like avoid sports at all costs, you know, and it, it did actually it absolutely affected how I was able to show up and what I felt like my value was. Mm-hmm. And in some ways I took that when I sort of went more into like punk rock and like going to shows and that kind of thing, yes. like I kind of just gave everybody the big, you know, F you but that was a reaction to that Mm -hmm. kind of small T trauma that, you know, went throughout my earlier childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it absolutely shaped who I am.
0: It absolutely does. And things like being neurodivergent, you know, the systems around us don't support, you know, Mm -hmm. anyone who doesn't fit into the small slice. So you know, there are systems around us that are traumatizing. It, it, it's really much bigger than we actually thought, which is sad on one hand, but it's also a relief in the other, because then you can stop gaslighting yourself and saying, I yeah. should have just been a better kid or yeah. I should have tried harder. No, there was no way for me to learn in that system, like period. And yeah. the fact that I have a master's yeah. degree is an absolute miracle.
1: We've had several people uh, in the last couple of years in our community who have not from us, but like during the time that they were there. Get a diagnosis for adult uh, ADHD, autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, being neurodivergent is highly associated with being creative, and mm-hmm. so I think for a lot of people too, there's there's all of that layered in as well. But I think what's important to highlight here is that, well, first of all, the people who got those diagnoses were thrilled because they're like, finally, things make sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're saying about mm-hmm. looking at these patterns and saying, oh, there's there are reasons, right? Yeah but i think the thing that is so kind of crazy making about discovering how tr- childhood trauma affects your relationship with creative work as mm-hmm. an adult is that it's supposed to be our healing like you were saying like it's supposed to be our place of safety mm-hmm. our place of where we really get to be ourselves and that's why we're doing it in the first place right and yet there are behaviors that go around it that that we you know get trapped in that just absolutely undermine that.
0: Yeah. It's, it, it, all of them don't make space, right? There's less of them that do. And so creativity becomes a way to cope. Creativity becomes a way to express yourself. Creativity becomes a way to disappear. It becomes a way to have value. It becomes a way to communicate it, you know, and I see that happen with people who start a business that so many people who are entrepreneurial in particular, that need to be the one in control to be able to express their vision in a way that's not you know, contained by the systems and by the people around us. Childhood trauma is is a it is a place where many businesses are grown out of, and a lot of <laughs> creative. Work it's an indicator. Is also, it's an indicator, right? And it's 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 can be wonderful because these childhood experiences can create skill sets and you know um, abilities to be very entrepreneurial, to be very creative, to think out of the box, have a high level of tolerance. Unfortunately, for intense situations or you know discomfort. Um, but at some point, that doesn't work anymore. And so I think we right. are trying to put a value or put a business or something like that around a creative process. And that's been your way to cope and uh, to find meaning for yourself for so long. That can be hard. Yeah. And you also talked about, you You said that trauma is often related to
1: an experience of feeling unseen or unheard.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Making creative work is about expressing something. I believe that it's it's about Making something that can contain somehow your inner life, some part of your inner life, mm-hmm. and convey it to somebody else in as complete a form as possible. And that means that you need to have somebody on the other end there. And you need to, and the, but if you're if you can't trust that people are going to understand you, that can also prevent you, I think, yeah. from finishing and getting the yeah. thing out there because you think like, I, I want to be seen that you know, that responds to this trauma, and yet I'm afraid that. I'm not going to be seen. I'm going to put it out there and be rejected again.
0: Yep. it's one more, one more time where people didn't get it. They didn't see it. They didn't value it. Mm. so Therefore, they don't value me, see me, or get me.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I've seen some comments in the, the stream going by here about inner critic. And I know you have very interesting, f- like, f- sort of reframing for us around inner critic that I think would be really helpful um, mm-hmm. if you could go into how you think about the inner critic.
0: So I think about the inner critic differently than a lot of people do. And I think part of it is because I think the inner critic is very much wired, is very connected to our nervous system in that our nervous system is set up for survival period, right? And so whatever it takes to survive, it's going to happen. And and over time, those critical people in our lives, their voice gets attached to our inner critic. So I, I think kind of a little bit differently about it. However, you know, a lot of people will say you need to kill it. You need to slay it. You need to bury it, fire it, whatever that is. Um, and I've been there too. When I first got into the mindset world, I literally wrote an ebook called Fire Your Inner Critic. So I'm not, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. It's a journey. We evolve. We
1: evolve. <laughs> journey.
0: I'm evolved. But what I understand to be true, what I do is that your inner critic can be a partner to help you understand when you're, you're getting you know, triggered or activated your nervous. Okay, movement.
1: wait, let me say that again. The inner critic can be a partner, a partner when you're getting triggered and activated. Okay, yeah. go ahead. I just wanted to make sure everybody heard that because that, yeah. that's very like, important. What?
0: Right, yes. yeah. It can be, it can be a really, it can be a, you know, what too, but it yeah. <laughs> difficult <laughs> partner, this is difficult partner perhaps. So it can be. And which is why I think a lot of people are really quick to shut it down. But the problem with that is, is that we lose wisdom and we lose information when we do that. If we're just trying to, to shut the thing down, then we're spending all our energy in battle with it, as opposed to stopping and saying, "Hmm, that's interesting. (laughs) You're here again, what's going on? And just like in the book, you know, Liz Gilbert talks about fear. She says that she's talking about creative work and creativity, that Fear will be along for the ride. It just will be because it's supposed to be, right? Our nervous systems are assessing risk, safety, and fear around us at all times. It's what its job is. So we can't say, hey, fear, leave. So in a story that she you know, uses in the book, she talks about inviting fear on the, on the, the ride, you know, basically like you're going on a road trip. And so fear gets to sit in the back seat. Fear does not get to have a say in where you're going, change the channel of the radio station for all those old folk. It doesn't get to make any decisions, but it's honored and it is there, you know, it's not exiled. And so I don't think that we should exile our inner critic because I think that there's information there for us because most of the time in the work that I've done as a therapist and, you know, as a coach, there's usually some younger version of ourselves that has been wounded in some way that needs some attention when that critic comes up. I think our inner critic is the protector of those younger versions of ourselves that were wounded. Right. So if if I want to give a talk and get on a stage, which I have done, keynote lots of people, my inner critic will start to say, who do you think you are? It's not safe. You're not wearing the right outfit. Um, You're where you're using notes. They're going to make fun of you. And if I take a moment and say, I hear you. What is it that you need? Usually what happens is there's a younger version of me that is really unhappy with the fact that I'm about to stand up in front of 300 people and give a talk because that younger version of me still thinks that I'm dumb, I'm lazy, I have nothing to say, and that people are going to be mean to me. So that critic is really there to kind of try and stop it. So when we say, I hear you, what do you need? What's going on here? And we take a breath and we stop and don't try to overwhelm and undermine that voice. A lot of the time, you're going to find a little bit of wisdom, a little chunk of knowledge about something that needs to be healed, a part of you that does not feel comfortable with the thing that you're asking it to do. And so that you can get into partnership, a relationship with that part of you to negotiate next steps.
1: Yes. Yes. So that's so good. I love that. Um, that one thing you said right at the beginning there, which I think is really uh, useful, especially with the way I talk about things in methodology. I talk a lot about data gathering. Mm-hmm. So looking at things that are, you know, showing up in a way that we're not thrilled with, or the way that we're functioning, isn't the way we, and I go, hmm, interesting, yeah. fascinating, and like kind of take notes, you know? And I feel like what you're saying there is like, look at those moments where the inner critic shows up most forcefully and take that little bit of distance. But I also like the feeling like you are the older self and you actually mm-hmm. know that you're completely capable of this and the caring for that inner critic, like, mm-hmm. oh, honey, you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, look, we're going to be fine. You know, like mm-hmm. that kind of, Kindness, not necessarily to yourself, but to Mm -hmm. this piece of yourself, I think can give you, can potentially give you a sense of competence, you know, that you are able to be a carer Mm -hmm. that could help heal that.
0: Yeah. I used to judge myself for being critical of myself. So then there's just one more layer there, right? So I'm critical. I'm going to judge myself for being critical. But when you realize why it's there and that there's usually a wounded part underneath it, and you can literally say, you are so loud and gnarly today. Could we take a step back and what is it that you need or who are you trying to protect or what's going on here? Usually you're going to get some information. And this is why I really struggle with the whole self-sabotage thing because, you know, I don't, I don't think people are walking around sabotaging themselves. I think they're having trauma responses and that no one's let them walk through that process in a way that is healthy and that they can then connect with that experience and move through it because- Mm -hmm. Your trauma is in your business, whether you think it is or not. Your trauma is in your art, whether you think it is or not. Your trauma is in your career, whether you think it is. Like it just is. You know that twelve-year-old who decided you were going to be a banker because you wanted security, and that's what you saw as security. You better bet that that experience is still informing your your know, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors as an adult.
1: Yes, yes, totally. And I think that the thing that can be um, tricky for some creatives who actually—I mean, not everybody, but some people actually use tr- their trauma as part of what the story they're telling you know they're making mm-hmm. art about it yeah. but that doesn't necessarily solve how it's coming out in your process mm-hmm. you may be resolving thoughts and feelings you have about you know things that happen in your life and expressing them connecting around them but that doesn't mean you're actually changing these behaviors that are triggered yeah. you know as a result of of whatever happened earlier yeah. yeah um yeah no i think that's really it's such a powerful idea that it, you could could basically You know, the inner critic is such a, can be such a powerful voice and such a like, you know, demanding voice, whatever, to actually like recruit that voice Mm -hmm. as part of your team and say like, all right, let's all, you know, let's figure this out together. I remember when I, when my kids were younger, I learned this phrase from a client, which is behavior is communication, Mm -hmm. Um, which is very hard to remember when you have an 11 year old doing 11 year old things. Behavior is communication what am I communicating to the world, to my business, to my art, to my spouse, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, like, what am I communicating by this behavior?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And when I have Um, a meltdown, it's usually, yeah, it's usually 11 year old inside my head. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a 50 year old woman. I got one on the outside.
1: It's worse. No, he's fine. He's fine. Okay. So uh, we talked about money trauma a little bit because you talked about the idea of, you know, this where you sort of came from there. But like, can we expand on that a little bit? Because it, that just being an artist or being a writer is very similar to being a social worker in terms of the way the the mission oriented kind of expectation um, in society and in ourselves often.
0: Absolutely. I think that there's so much that we download as, you know, kids about money who has it who doesn't how it comes to us and you know we make decisions based upon that sometimes consciously sometimes unconsciously and there is there seems to be an inherent belief that if you're a social worker you have to be low paid and be doing it because you are you just can't not do it you just can't not help people and um that may be it may be a little true, you know, we're, and we were conditioned to never ask for, never to expect to earn more, to never negotiate a salary. You know, we were put down a path and told what we could and could not make. And I'm proof that you can be a social worker and make more than $30,000 a year. You know, like it's not a thing. <laughs> um, and it doesn't have to be magical for you to do that. It is, it is refusing to believe what people are telling you about the money um, and for, and starting to come up with what is your relationship with money, what is your story around money, and that requires some dismantling, because unfortunately the systems that told us what we get and what we don't get are still at play, and can you know have an impact on the day to day of our life, work, and business, and also what we see, what we see to be true for ourselves from day to day. So I think a lot of the, the money trauma can be systemic. It can be experience that you had where, you know, maybe someone told you that, you know, you could never make money by doing art or no one's going to buy your stickers or, you know, that's just silly. Where you know, whatever that may be, that, that gets really deeply ingrained into our belief system about ourselves and what is possible. So we kind of have to unravel that money trauma. And look for people who are actually, you know, I I don't want people just to believe things. I want them to excavate it, do some research, be a sleuth. You know, if there are people making money through creative processes, what are they doing? What does it look like? Mm -hmm. Show yourself the evidence that what you believe to be true is actually true.
1: Yeah, agreed. And I feel like a lot of times it comes down to, it goes back to this piece about communicating and feeling like Mm -hmm. the trauma around or fear that comes out of trauma around sharing what you're doing and then getting behind it and really, really standing in the ground, and like, this is what I'm communicating. This is what I'm really doing here. Here's me. And then that translates to this kind of difficult, like then if the work's not getting out there, it's not getting shared, you're not talking about it. You're not, you know, it's really tied together. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to so many clients who are just like, I can't, I can't, I mean, I have to make it so cheap because people won't pay anything and they don't care and starving mm-hmm. artists and, you know all this stuff, and that's—I mean—it's just there's so much to unwind. There's so many messages around this, and um, and you know this this overall expectation that like if you're an artist, if you're a writer, you're doing it because you're passionate, mm-hmm. and you are—that's mm-hmm. true. And thus, money shouldn't come into it
0: mm-hmm.
1: because somehow that spoils it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you see that in the in the helping services, just like you know we were talking about social work, or if you're in a healing modality you know i i have the same very conversation with people who are in healing arts where they are Mm -hmm. challenged constantly because people will say to them you should heal because you want to change the world not because you want Mm -hmm. to make money and we have to disrupt that thought process because it has not Mm -hmm. always been so
1: creativity
0: Mm -hmm. and creative work you know there have been times where it was highly valued so
1: it still is it just it's i mean but it's you know there are mixed messages Mm -hmm. around it And I think that a big piece of this. this. Yeah, exactly. A big piece of this is that the work that we're talking about is work that's been feminized. Yeah. And um, whether it's all women or not, it's, you know, it's feminized work. And that means that women are expected to care for other people, societally, Mm -hmm. mostly, without asking for anything back. It's a really good point. Thank you for illuminating that for me. I think that's, that's what's ha- like with art and writing mm-hmm. gradually we're getting to the point where, I mean, I see it in my, my classes where I've got 15 to 20% men and mm-hmm. everybody else is women and same thing is going for master's programs. When we see applications for mm-hmm. faculty, the teachers who are coming through, it's more and more women doing this work, um, which is amazing. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. They have so much to say and so much yeah. to share, but I think when, you know, it just, it changes the dynamic around value unfortunately
0: yeah I think a lot of trauma happens as well around being creative when we're young and art in general because it has to look a certain way and you know I never thought I was creative because I couldn't you know I'm I'm being really reductive right here to say I couldn't draw (laughs) that's not I don't mean that all creative work is you know um, yeah yeah that's go for it. <laughs> I'm reducing Forget. it down, but you know that experience because I love to draw, but that experience shut me down from my creative self, like in a lot of ways. and i it only came to terms in the last several years that my work is actually my business and my work are actually my creative outlet, you know, they are very oh, yeah. creative to me, you know, and I would never have seen it that way. And it was, yeah. I had to unravel that trauma from that art teacher. <laughs> me yes. Mess. Yes. Was crap. No, I,
1: I see that too. Like, I, I feel like I stayed away from building a business for probably 10 years longer than I would have, mm-hmm. because I didn't feel like I could get over all of the business versus art crap. And I mm-hmm. see how creative it is now. And it's very interesting and stimulating for me. And you know, I still feel like I have to couch it for everybody. Guys, doesn't matter if you don't think you're a business owner. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Yes, yes. Which it is. It is okay. But it's also like you can be, and that's also mm-hmm. okay. This episode of The Autonomous Creative is brought to you by Authentic Visibility. I work with a lot of committed mid-career creatives who struggle to get their work seen. It feels crappy to put so much love and effort into making something. But when you introduce it in the real world, there's a whole lot of nothing as far as reaction. It's truly awful, and they're not looking for attention because they're egomaniacs. Art and creative work in general exists to communicate some set of ideas or thoughts or emotions from you, from inside your head to inside someone else's head in as intact a form as possible. When you release your project and it goes up like a brilliant bunch of balloons disappearing into the clear blue sky with no one around to see or care, never to pick their own balloon to take home and treasure, demoralizing. But the truth is most creatives in their natural state are frankly pretty terrible at telling anyone why they should care about the work. Why should someone show up to get a pretty balloon? It's not their fault though. It's how we teach people to create their best work, by digging deep inside ourselves to come up with wonderful original new ideas. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. The problem is that's where the process typically ends, creating, not communicating. Virtually all the training and practice of making creative work focuses on the first half of the core mission of communication, getting those ideas out of your head and into some actual form that people can see, but that's missing half the picture. As a creative, it's your job to build the whole, complete connection, to build a bridge for the audience that they can use to easily cross over and understand the value of your work to them. And this kind of clarity and audience-focused language doesn't come easy to creatives. And that's why I put together a free class specifically for creatives, ridiculously named, How to Get People Wildly Obsessed with Your Work. And in it, I teach the key technique to flip your perspective 180 degrees and start to use your audience's point of view to inform how you share your work so that they'll get it. I also introduce our awesome program, Authentic Visibility, the audience growth program designed to turn highly skeptical and frankly marketing-sensitive creatives into powerful advocates for their vision and their work, setting the stage for huge career growth and a major role in the larger cultural conversation. So if you want your work to make its mark in the world, check out the free Wildly Obsessed class and supercharge your ability to connect with new fans in just 90 minutes. Go to jessicaable.com wildly and join the free class now. That's J E S S I C A A B E L dot com slash wildly. Now let's get back to the interview. Anyway, so one last question, and then I want to open up to everybody else's questions. You have talked about and talked about in your book, which we should get a link to that in the chat there. You've talked about an emotional sustainability plan. Can mm-hmm. you talk about what that is and what role that plays in your professional life?
0: Yeah. So I'll kind of lay it, I'll try and kind of lay it out in that it is recognizing that those childhood experiences impact everything we do, including our business. Then um, getting clear about what they are, checking out how it's impacting the relationship that you have with your business. If it's one that's not sustainable and positive, then how do we do that, change that? Because you can change the relationship with your business. It's within your power to do so. Defining what relationship you want to have with it, and I love that process, and that's what the book is mostly about: is that process and creating this like loving partnership with the business. It's part of that emotional sustainability plan because then you never feel alone anymore, even though you're a business of one. Um, and then really recognizing what experiences that you had that could be triggering your behavior in your business, because if you can recognize them and know what kind of the lava is underneath them, you can begin to change it. And that could be that, you know, maybe you're really struggling with a client that you was a high, it was a high price client. They, you know, commissioned you for something or they set a retainer and you just find that you are struggling with them every second. And it's very activating part of that emotional sustainability plan is to be able to look at it and say, you know what, this person reminds me of someone, or I'm feeling, a way I used to feel in this relationship or in the circumstance. And so when you can honor that and make some space for it and work on that trigger or that critic that's coming up and saying, you know, you don't serve this client, you know, um, then part of that plan is for you to then recognize it, see what kiddo might be attached to it and spend some time with them and begin to course correct And also looking at, you know, what are your values? Like, I think values work is so important when it comes to having a business, because if you know what your values really are for your business, it's going to direct you in a way that makes your business much more emotionally sustainable because you will know what does not line up and what does line up. And it makes decision making Mm -hmm. so much easier. So that emotional sustainability plan is really kind of understanding, you know, who you are, where you've been, how it's impacting what you do now, why you're doing this to start with. You know, a lot of people start businesses because they're trying to prove something, rebel against something, show somebody something. And if you don't know that, and that is running underneath your business or your project, it will change the direction of your business, because you have the intention underneath it running behind your business that you're not aware of. And so mm-hmm. getting clear about why you did this to start with outside of money, freedom, and that stuff, like really why, you know, for me, part of my business is to show people I'm not dumb, stupid, or lazy. It's a why I have it's deeper, but I recognize that. And so when I recognize that I can, I can harness it as supposed to be triggered and, you know, sabotaged by it. So that's kind of what, what I mean from an emotional sustainability plan is like, why did you start this business to start with? And how can you maintain it in a way that does not overwhelm you, burn you out, re-traumatize you, do harm to the people who are connected to it? It's important. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, it really is. And um, so if, if you guys have not checked out the book, you totally should. Just a little teaser. There is a Muppet. Say no more. Saying no more. <laughs> there is a Muppet. There's a Muppet in it. Just saying. Um, of course there is. Of course there is. Why wouldn't there be a Muppet? <laughs> um, okay, so let's get to some questions here because we've got some really good ones. Andrea asks, How did you make changes in your business as a result of your insights? So you had this big moment of like, oh my God, then what did you do?
0: Yeah. So I got clear, you know, asked myself. Um, okay, so I'm feeling abused by my business. Why would that happen? Because I started this business, it's mine. Okay, I defaulted into some old patterns of behavior because of those experiences I had with my mom growing up, um, which I had handled in personal life, by the way. They were all like in the rear view mirror, but you know, when you start a business, it's a crisis. <laughs> so we revert back to old patterns sometimes. Um, and so then I decided to define the relationship I wanted to have now that I realized that I was in a relationship and I, sat down and looked at, you know, what are the characteristics of the entity that my business is to what I want to connect with. And I started to build the relationship I want. And, you know, I started there so that I could feel connected to it in a new way, in a way that felt empowered. It felt deeper, more resonant and got clear on those values. And then began those next steps of building a business that would Support me emotionally, uh, as opposed to feeling isolated and alone in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's yeah. kind of where I started was identifying the relationship I had and defining what I wanted. I wonder if you could,
1: I mean, please say no if this doesn't sound mm-hmm. okay, but like give us a specific example of something that you saw that was abusive, and then something, and then how did you alter that?
0: I had no boundaries. Mm. My clients were directing my time. I was emailing at night. I was not recognizing the revenue I was bringing in to contribute to my household. I thought I was not helping. I I wasn't acknowledging the facts (laughs) and I had no boundaries. Um, And so if I was feeling burnt out and beat up, it is because I was, I was not allowing myself to have a break, to have time off, to protect myself and my energy and my emotional capacity when it came to this business because uh, they don't teach you that in therapy school either how to protect yourself or take care of yourself by the way and so sounds a little bit like art school where they don't teach you how right? to like actually be an artist in the world they don't yeah. my they sister to art school and she would be in that building at three o'clock in the morning doing a boutique and i'm just like how can you do how can you live like this um it's just so hard and so driven that's a great that. example
1: it's very concrete and i think a lot mm-hmm. of people here experience that where one way or another In some area of your world you're like there are no boundaries here and what do i do so how did you then resolve that
0: i got clear where i was leaking them and then i got clear as to why i was leaking them because again remember i felt as a kid like i didn't matter i wasn't seen, heard, valued and i was leaking them because i didn't feel valued in my own business that i was creating and so i got clear about what my capacity was and where those boundaries were being um too fluid and so money was one of them I wasn't, I wasn't relating to my money in a way that I showed with a money mindset person, go figure. But, you know, I was still building a new business. I'd never had a business before. Tobler's shoes, you know, right. Exactly. So getting clear about what, what I was going to pay for and was not going to pay for who I was going to donate to, who I was not going to donate to what my working hours were and putting a cap on them, the type of work that I do, you know, so scope creep doesn't happen getting very clear about the types of, you know, packages, if you want to call it that, that I offered. So I wasn't constantly creating new things for people. Mm -hmm. Um, A million ways, right? A million ways. The place I was working, I was, you know, I wasn't even working in an office at that point. I was constantly moving around. I had no boundaries around space in which I was building this company. I know a lot of you
1: identify with that. You're doing your art in some corner that isn't even yours. Yeah. Right. You're piling it on the dining room table and you have to clear it off for dinner. Mm-hmm. Guys, there's going to be some way to handle this. Even if you live in a small space that you can have your own space.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I love that. That's one. so
1: helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Andrea says, I'm curious about my trauma being the seat of my desire to start my own business. Does people sometimes do this inner work and then decide they are comfortable working for somebody else? I really struggle with both feeling that I'm worthy of my own investment and the work Um, to believe that I can make good money and feel good about it as much in our world systems. Uh, I think I'm reading this wrong. I can't tell if I'm making everything more difficult by trying to start my own thing.
0: A lot of people respond to this in different ways. Sometimes they will go through this work and they will say, you know what, I created this business because I wanted to prove my dad wrong or because there was an expectation in my family and I don't really want this business. This is not even mine. Now that i realize this, this whole thing was a trauma response and I don't want it. And so then what they do is they decide, you know, do I want to burn this down and start over and bring me to the thing? Um, Or do I want to try and make it do because I already have some some success here. Uh, But it's not that uncommon for people to do, to, for it to, instead of be a love letter to their business and ends up being a breakup letter. And that feels really good to them. There are times where people will do this work and they say, you know what, my capability And my capacity are two different things. I mistook the fact that I'm capable means I need to have, I need to do this thing or have this business when I would rather use my capacity for my family, for a hobby that I enjoy for traveling. And I would rather work for someone else recognizing I don't have to prove anything by having a business or being an entrepreneur or whatever, or, you know, getting paid for my art. Like I don't have to prove anything to you anymore because I've done this work. So people's responses to this can be very different. Some people double down. They're like, let's do this, you know, me and my inner critic. I got my critic. I understand. Let's go, you know, let's build this thing to be even more. So it just depends. It's a very personal process.
1: Yes. And I, I think that's really great too. That idea that like, you know, I recognize in myself and in lots of other people where it feels like you're not really the thing. And this is a trauma response feeling like you can't really be actually a good artist or a good writer or a good creator of any kind Mm -hmm. if you're not being paid for it if it's not your job yeah so even if it's you working for somebody else like you you have to be paid for that thing or it's not real somehow and i i spend a lot of time talking to people and going like okay like you're doing an amazing job like you're doing this cool thing you can still do it you can still share it it doesn't have to be your profession for that
0: to be the case Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's letting these outside structures tell you what it gets to be and gets and how it gets valued in the world. And that's, you yeah. know, it's yeah. not useful most of the time.
1: And if that <laughs> feels scary, which I, I recognize that scary feeling of like, oh my God, does that mean I can't do it? You know, you can, you still can do it professionally, but recognizing that feeling of anxiety around that, I think is really, really useful in, hard, in, in getting better and like figuring out what you really want and not just reacting, reacting,
0: reacting. Yeah. I always tell people that, you know, if you, if you're giving your business a job outside of the, you know, the structural pieces of it, if your business is there to prove something, to make you feel worthy to whatever, you know, if you have some kind of job for this business outside of what is obvious, it can be problematic and yeah, it it can just be hard because you never find the relief that you're looking for. Um, because that first revenue goal that you reach or that first product you make or that first book you write, if there's some reason underneath it that you're working on this, that is emotional, it's like an emotional underbelly, you can write eight books and you're still not going to feel worthy. You're still not going to prove anything to that person that told you you couldn't write it. You know, it doesn't work that way. And so we have to get yep. really clear about this.
1: Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, okay, so this is a question from Eleanor that kind of relates to that in some sense, which I think is, is sort of like if you identify all this trauma, um, do you think that it's always possible to fix the relationship between you and your business? If it was born through childhood trauma and built as you reenacted past trauma, as a consequence added more trauma experiences into that, can you transform that into something else other than a vessel to carry this stuff in? I think It's a very good question.
0: Can you mean transform the business into something else? The the work, the the practice that you're doing, the thing you're trying to build, the creative
1: work, if it's so threaded through with trauma, is it salvageable? Can you make it something else?
0: It can be. Mm -hmm. It can be. Again, it's kind of a personal process to figure out, you know, how much energy is this taking out of me? And do I feel like I can right this ship or put it in a new direction? Um, So I I believe it can be because it happens every day. I work with people every day who do that. And so, yeah, the answer is yes. And it takes some work. It takes some exploration and a, a willingness to be able to say, okay, that thing didn't work for me. Working in that way did not work for me. Um, I'm going to change this. I'm going to do this differently. And being willing to address, you know, is, is, is visibility a problem for me? Is that something that's really hard for me? Okay, so maybe I need to, to do a little bit of tweaking of like what type of visibility feels safer to me as I build as I, you know, evolve this business. So you can. Yeah, I
1: think that was very apropos because I know Eleanor is mm-hmm. thinking about visibility, um, just in general, thinking about uh, what feels safe and what feels mm-hmm. good. And so that idea of figuring out from the point of view of, again, embracing your inner critic in those mm-hmm. questions and saying like, the information, this is information, what do I get from this? Like, how can I learn from this and take care of myself and also this younger version of myself. Yeah,
0: I think you can um, heal yourself through your business if you're aware it's a possibility. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean I I believe that too. I think that, you know, it's it's not a baby bath water situation, you mm-hmm. know, like or don't make it a baby bathwater situation. Like, you know, there's lots of great stuff there and people are doing, you know, the, the amazing things that you do that give you joy, those need saving, you know, and then thinking about what are the things mm-hmm. that, what are the parts of that, what are the parts of the process, what are the structures around it that aren't working.
0: Yeah. I I had a client, give a real quick example. I had a client who came in with the goal of being the top 1% of revenue for her company as a female founder and driven, driven, driven by that. And she recognized that that drive, that desire to reach that goal had nothing to do with her. It was all about proving something to her father. Right. And when she recognized that she kept the business that she had but she changed the goal that she had for herself. And funnily enough, she still met her revenue goal. She just wasn't driving herself to get there. And she let go of the eight employees, you know, that she was managing, that was driving her, you know, to the brink. Um, and was still able to do the thing that she wanted to do. She was just not doing it in a way that was replicating that really self-abusive behavior that was, work- she was working it out on everyone around her, including including her employees. So she didn't change she didn't get rid of that business. She just changes how it changed how she operated within it.
1: Yeah. I say just, and I don't mean just. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a long process and it takes a lot of work, but I think that that's, you know, what's the alternative really? If you recognize this stuff and you see what's happening to not take action about it's just, it doesn't seem possible to me. Mm-hmm. And maybe it doesn't, it's not immediately effective or like there's some wrong turns or whatever. But if you're seeing these patterns, like... what's your motivation for not doing something about it you know i know it's scary but
0: yeah yeah. and the right answer can also be you know what i want to work this out and heal this but i want to do it um without it being a high-risk situation where my revenue my my money is dependent upon it i'm going to go work for someone else while i work on this myself Mm -hmm. and then see what i want you know because maybe i'll want something different so both of those answers are right
1: yeah in the chat, Liz has posted a link to her work, which is um, actually a PTSD musical. That's uh, about different kinds of trauma and what effect it's had and healing from that. So wow. maybe something that people really enjoy. And it's, it's been a long, awesome process watching watching Liz develop that. So there's um, there are performances of this as well that have, are recorded and available. Gosh, I would love to see that. Yeah, well, I'll make sure you get it if you didn't see it in the chat. Okay. So um, Patricia's asking a question that I'm pretty sure the answer is yes, but the pretty simple one here, which is if you are having trouble making progress in your entrepreneurial endeavors, do you think the trauma can be why? And is that what you help find out? Mm -hmm. It's kind of a gimme. So,
0: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Especially if you've worked with a coach and you've had the strategies and you've done all the things, right. Then the, the, the hunch is that you're putting business solutions or strategies on top of an emotional issue, right? And if, if if you're spinning your wheels there, it could be that there's something there, yeah. Right.
1: Perfect. And we're just at time, and basically, are through the questions. So, I want to just ask you quickly: Where can people find you? How can they get more from your work? I know <laughs> we already posted about your book, but can you talk about it a little bit? What else can people do?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Follow me on Instagram at Nicole.lewiskeeper. I post there a lot. If I have something coming up, I'm usually posting it there. I've been trying to do some educational reels and you know, I, I'm still learning these things, but that's where I am a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am also a medium. I have I write articles about this topical medium. So I, I have a profile under there under Nicole Lewis Keeper. Okay, great. And you have a um, so
1: with the book. There's also a self-direct or self-paced course, right? There's a mm-hmm. Love Your Business course. Is that yeah,
0: right? yeah, yeah? I have a course called um, How to Love Your Business, and it's a deeper dive into the bit the book, and it takes you through the exercises and more. You know, it kind of the book stops about halfway through the course, and the course continues on about all of those mechanisms for creating the sustainable business, the emotional sustainable business that, that you want. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we'll get
1: that, that link in the um, chat as well. So, yeah. Um, Okay. Well that about covers it. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Nicole. It's been just amazing hearing more about what you do. And I'm, I'm just so pleased we could do this.
0: I am too. Thank you so much for having me. It was nice to meet everyone. All
1: right. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks for being here with us. See you next time. See ya. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us today for The Autonomous Creative. Our show is produced by Matt Madden. Our production coordinator is Lucina Poyakandian. And our production assistant is Rian Sunday. Music is by Matt Madden. And I'm your host, Jessica Abel. You can find all our takeaways, as well as the links and extras we mentioned today, plus transcripts in the show notes. Find everything you need at acpod.show if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And please take a sec to pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. And we absolutely love to hear your reactions and takeaways on Instagram. Tag us at Autonomous Creative.
0: See you next time.